High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. You must a kiss is just a kiss, a Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and today we bring you another story from The Seduced, a miniseries related to my new book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom, in Howard Hughes' Hollywood. Today's subject makes just a brief cameo appearance in Seduction. In 1946, Howard Hughes test flew an experimental plane he had been contracted to build for the U.S. military during World War II. Though Hughes was clearly late in delivering the plane, the aircraft was still not ready for flight, as Hughes learned when he lost control of one of the wings. The plane crashed into a Beverly Hills neighborhood. Hughes was pulled from the burning wreckage, and his survival was presented in the press as a miracle. In the years immediately preceding the crash, Hughes had gotten away with juggling about three careers and dozens of women. In the months after the crash, Hughes would be essentially fully bedridden, and a number of the balls he had successfully kept aloft in the air suddenly came crashing down. One of those balls, so to speak, was Linda Darnell. Darnell was a gorgeous brunette contract starlet at 20th Century Fox, who was married to a much older man, 
top Fox cinematographer, Pev Marley. When she began an affair with Hughes in early 1946, Darnell was at a career transition point. As we'll see, her past was marked by a search for stability, which a chaotic home life had not provided, and her greatest films were yet to come. When the dashing Hughes narrowly escaped death, Darnell apparently decided that life was too short and that the time was right to trade one husband for another. While Hughes was still in the hospital, Linda announced her separation from Marley. Weeks later, Hughes was convalescing at Cary Grant's house when Darnell and Marley came to visit him. Marley offered to quietly divorce Linda if Hughes agreed to pay him $25,000 a year, roughly equivalent to $300,000 in 2018 dollars, every year for the rest of Marley's life. Hughes had no interest in doing anything like this. As seduction details, he had been in a situation like this before, and it hadn't worked out well, and the negotiations quickly shattered Linda's romantic fantasies. She walked out on both men that night. Darnell would eventually get back together with Marley and would soon embark on an affair that was much more significant to her life and career than the brief dalliance with Hughes. As we'll see on today's episode, Darnell was never considered a great actress, but she was a striking star who, when paired with good material and great directors, could be unforgettable. Unfortunately, her brief career was soon overcome by heartbreak, alcoholism, and unspeakable tragedy. Join us, won't you, for the story of Linda Darnell. Linda was born Monetta Darnell in 1923 Dallas, one of four children born to postal worker Roy and the emotionally unstable Pearl. The family called Monetta Tweedles. Tweedles was an uncommonly beautiful child, and Pearl, longing for excitement and fame for herself, pushed her daughter to enroll in acting and dancing classes and to do some local modeling. After Monetta won a sixth grade talent contest, she bought into her mother's insistence that she belonged in Hollywood. Later, though, Monetta would have nothing but regrets. I've been working since I was 11, she recalled later. I never got to do the things most girls do. I never attended a school dance, never took a spin in a cut-down jalopy. I worked. I was a lonely child and grateful to anyone who liked me. Three years later, a 20th Century Fox talent scout named Ivan Khan came to Dallas looking for potential new stars, and Pearl scheduled a meeting for 14-year-old Monetta with him in his hotel room. Pearl told her daughter that she was not to admit her real age. They hoped Khan would assume she was 18. A few months later, the studio invited Monetta to come out to Hollywood for a screen test. Right off the train, Monetta and a handful of other female aspirants culled from the middle of the continent 
were brought to a radio station to meet Tyrone Power, Moneta's favorite star. Could it get more glamorous than that? It probably could have, but for Moneta, it didn't. She was paired with a vocal and acting coach to teach her some basics and to diminish her Texan accent. After two weeks of this crash course, she was given her screen test. But while in Hollywood, the men at Fox figured out that Moneta wasn't the 18-year-old she and her mother had hoped they would believe her to be. At 14, she was too old to be a child actress, and just barely too young for the studio to feel comfortable casting her in adult roles. Finally, the studio told Moneta she was just too young and that she should return to Texas and hone her craft and try again after a year or two. The teenager was devastated. She had left home, hoping she would never be back because she would so swiftly be swept up into life-changing stardom. Now she was being sent back to Texas in defeat. She was miserable, but she had no choice. So she went back home, enrolled in high school, and continued taking every opportunity she could find to model and act in her hometown. A few months later, RKO came to town to conduct another talent search. At Pearl's insistence, Moneta entered. She won the Dallas round, and then was entered into a competition, nationally broadcast on the radio, in which she and other regional winners would compete for one RKO contract. Moneta lost, but made it far enough that Fox decided to take a second look at her. On April 5th, 1939, she arrived in Los Angeles and signed a contract with 20th Century Fox. The studio had not allowed Moneta's mother to accompany her, and the teenage girl moved alone into the studio club, an apartment house for young female pilgrims to Hollywood, just like her, which had been established a few years earlier by Mary Pickford. Eventually, when the teenager became totally homesick and despondent, her older sister Undine was allowed to come to California and move into a small apartment with the starlet. A while later, the whole Darnell family moved out to Los Angeles, and their breadwinner would struggle to deal with the omnipresence and passive aggression of her domineering mother. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. The studio's creative wizard, Daryl Zanuck, 
had agreed to sign Moneta with an eye toward casting her as a young model in a film called Hotel for Women. But he worried that she lacked a unique personality of her own that audiences would respond to. It would thus be the studio's job to superimpose a persona onto her. They decided to go with a standard Cinderella story to suggest that Moneta had been plucked out of total obscurity, which was sort of true, but sort of wasn't, given that she had been groomed by her mother for this opportunity for half a decade. Zanuck also worked against the kernel of truth to this story by insisting that Moneta's countrified first name be changed. He dubbed her Linda alluding to her beauty, and also leaving open the door to casting the Texan in so-called ethnic parts. Hotel for Women was not an ambitious film, but Linda's part in it was large and demanding. The studio hairdresser would arrive at her apartment at 4.30 a.m. to conduct the two hours of grooming necessary to prepare Linda for a 7 a.m. on-set call time. Then, in the evenings, she was often sent to promotional events, wearing evening wear borrowed from the Fox costume shop. When she once made the mistake of going to the grocery store on an afternoon off, wearing no makeup, Zanuck found out about it, reprimanded her, and told her never to let it happen again. You are going to be a star, the mogul declared, and a star does not carry groceries. Whenever you go out in public, you dress to the teeth. You don't go around in slacks. You dress and look like a star. It was a lot for a 15-year-old newbie to handle. On set, she began to rely on the film's cinematographer, J. Peverell Marley, to provide technical coaching and moral support. Marley was 40, and he fell in love with the 15-year-old. She was 16 by the time they worked together on Stardust, Linda's third feature, a film ginned up by Fox to narrativize Linda's concocted Cinderella backstory. Linda would star in four films with her schoolgirl idol, Tyrone Power, including a remake of the Douglas Fairbanks silent The Mark of Zorro, which would turn out to be a spectacular hit. While filming another remake, also starring Power, Blood and Sand in Mexico City, Linda began a romance with Jaime Horba, a Mexican college student she had first met when he had come to Dallas as an exchange student. Jaime wanted to marry Moneta, not Linda. She asked him to wait for her to see what happened with her career, but he eventually got tired of waiting. Linda was heartbroken. By the end of Linda's four-film run with power, the actress had turned 18. Now the Fox executives, Zanuck included, began calling Linda into their offices for private conferences. She was able to reject their advances, but just about simultaneously, the studio began having trouble figuring out how to cast her. After three years in Hollywood and a number of hit films behind her, the Cinderella act was no longer credible, 
but she still hadn't matured into a persona of her own. Compounding matters was the fact that Darnell felt defective as a woman. At age 18, she had never had her period. Her male biographer is very vague as to what was going on with her medically, and to be fair, given the times, there was probably a lack of information available to any of his sources who outlived Linda, or even Linda herself, although apparently one of her sisters had a similar issue, and her brother Cal was, as he put it, a mess glandularly. All that seems clear is that Linda was unable to become pregnant and knew she would never be able to perform that uniquely female function as far back as her late teens, which could go a long way toward explaining the depression and lack of self-esteem that would soon cause her to devote most of her waking energy to drinking. As a dutiful studio starlet, Linda gave no public indication that anything was amiss in her personal life. She would say things like, When I do marry, I intend to retire from the screen. I want a large family, at least four children. But that won't be for years yet. As it turned out, she'd marry sooner rather than later. In April 1943, Darnell was taken off the about-to-go-into-production Busby Berkeley musical The Gang's All Here as punishment for having eloped with Pev Marley. Linda was now 19, and her new husband, who had been married twice before, was a less-than-well-preserved 42. Linda seems to have gone into the marriage in search of an escape from her family, particularly her mother. Marley could simultaneously serve as a surrogate father and a consultant for Linda's career. Perhaps it was because Linda would now have an expert navigator of studio bullshit in her bed every night that Zanuck and the Fox Brass opposed the marriage. It didn't help that it would be difficult for their publicity departments to spin a young beauty's union with a not particularly handsome man old enough to be her father into a romantic fantasy for the fan magazines. Eventually, they would figure out how to spin this liability. Photoplay magazine ran an article supposedly penned by Linda with the title, I'm glad I married an older man. But in the immediate aftermath of the wedding, the studio suspended Linda for six weeks, which she spent apart from her new husband. With World War II underway, he had reported for active duty, and Linda stayed back in Los Angeles, volunteering at hospitals. Fox remained frosty towards Linda until her cameo appearance in The Song of Bernadette as the Virgin Mary became a popular sensation. But the film that would really change Linda's career happened when Fox loaned her out to United Artists to make Summer Storm, an adaptation of Chekhov's The Shooting Party, directed by Douglas Sirk. The part in Song of Bernadette was exaggeratedly emblematic of her previous roles, in which she was cast to provide a dose of pristine beauty and often relegated to the sidelines of the story. In Summer Storm, 
she'd play a desperate country peasant who played with the hearts of three men in order to rise through the ranks of decadent, pre-revolution Russia society. With this film and Hangover Square, in which she played another beauty who had the audacity to use her incredible looks to manipulate foolish men to ultimately dangerous ends, Linda finally found a niche. Time magazine called her Hollywood's most rousing portrayer of unhousebroken sex. Fox soon put their new sex symbol in the hands of Otto Preminger, who directed Linda in his next three films, beginning with the noir Fallen Angel. As the war wound down, Pev returned to Los Angeles, and his marriage to Linda began in earnest. Marley almost undoubtedly went into the marriage with more romantic notions than Linda had. He was at the very least very attracted to his beautiful wife, but he ended up turning her into a drinking buddy. The Darnell family would curse Marley in later years for in their minds having turned Linda on to alcohol as a coping mechanism and a social crutch. But Linda clearly had the genetic propensity to alcoholism. She may have begun drinking every night after work at Pev's encouragement, but as early as 1945, when she was just 22, her totally immoderate consumption of alcohol was already showing on her body, making it increasingly difficult for her to maintain the consistently low weight the studio preferred. Fluctuating weight aside, Linda was still a young and incredibly beautiful, sultry brunette, which meant it was only a matter of time before she caught the eye of Howard Hughes. To promote Summer Storm, a scowling Darnell had been posed in a stack of hay wearing a low-cut peasant blouse. This was essentially a rip-off of a photo taken of Jane Russell to promote Hughes' western, The Outlaw. The Russell photo predated the Darnell image by two years, but perhaps because, for reasons I detail in my book, The Outlaw still had not been released nationwide by 1944, when the summer storm image was circulated, apparently few made the connection at the time. But it's possible this image put Darnell on Hughes's radar, because it was only a short while later that he began to pursue her. By late 1945, they were seeing each other regularly. By mid-1946, when Hughes had his near-fatal crash, Linda was ready to alert the media. She announced she and Pev had separated, but by late summer, the Hughes affair was over, and by the fall, she was seeing her husband regularly again. At New Year's, Linda moved back into her marital home, and she and Pev announced their reconciliation. They decided to adopt a daughter, and in early January 1948, they brought home a little girl they named Charlotte Mildred, but always called Lola. Linda had turned to Pev in the midst of the extremely successful production of the film that was supposed to finally push her over the edge of superstardom. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. 
It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Linda spent nearly two years believing she would star opposite Tyrone Power one more time in a film called Captain from Castile. But then another, extremely important Fox film ran into trouble, and Zanuck decided Linda was the actress who could bail it out. Based on a best-selling, bodice-ripping historical novel, Forever Amber was supposed to be 20th Century Fox's answer to Gone with the Wind, and the role of Amber, an English woman who is determined to rise above her station by any means necessary, was supposed to be the best female leading role since Scarlett O'Hara. It originally went to an actual English woman named Peggy Cummins, but after over five weeks of shooting, Zanuck fired Cummings and decided to start all over again. Linda was handed the part, and much to her chagrin, Otto Preminger replaced original director John Stahl. Preminger thought the material was garbage. But even with all these red flags, Linda was happy for the part, at least initially. She submitted to a weight loss regimen and attempted to adopt a British accent with inconsistent results. She believed that Amber was the best chance she had had or would ever get to become a real superstar. Forever Amber was a hit, albeit an extremely expensive one, but it was Linda's next two films that would prove to be the peak of her career. The first was Unfaithfully Yours, a genuinely unhinged conceptual comedy in which Darnell played the bemused wife of a conductor who is consumed with fantasies slash nightmares of her infidelities. Unfaithfully Yours was not a hit upon its release in 1948, but it, and Linda, got excellent reviews. It helped to pave the way for her next film, A Letter to Three Wives. Another auteur work about infidelity, this was written and directed by Joseph Mankiewicz, brother of the co-writer of Citizen Kane. Joe had directed a few well-received films, including The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, but Letter to Three Wives would take his career to a new level, turning him into a mainstream cinematic author with few peers over the next decade. Linda played one of the three wives of the title, alongside Anne Southern and Jean Crane, but hers was the juiciest part. She appeared in each of the film's three flashback sections, dominating the third as the girl from the wrong side of the tracks who gets her department store magnet boss to marry her. Linda's portion of the film is the most emotionally ambiguous and least traditionally soapy, and the performance she turns in, as a young woman with a chip on her shoulder and a finely calibrated protective shell, is somehow both enigmatic and heartrending. On the upstate New York location shoot, Linda fell in love 
with Joe Mankiewicz. She was not the first actress to do so. First of all, Joe had a wife, the actress Rose Stradner, but he was chronically unfaithful. Another sometime Howard Hughes inamorata, Jean Tierney, had fallen in love with the director on their film Dragonwick, and he and Judy Garland had become embroiled in an affair before she met Vincent Minnelli, as she was making the transition to adult roles. All of these women believed that Joe could see into their souls and give them the guidance they needed to be the serious actresses and major stars they wanted to be. As one executive put it, Joe really hypnotized the ladies. He mesmerized them. As she had been when she fell for Hughes, Linda was open about this affair, and she told Pev she wanted to leave him for Joe. Pev suggested she be realistic. Even if she didn't want to face the fact that Minkowitz had romanced a lot of stars and had never left his wife to marry any of them, Pev and Linda now had an adopted baby daughter to think about. In fact, the adoption was so recent that the couple were subject to regular inspections, and the agency didn't historically look kindly on marital separations. So Linda stayed with Pev, but her romance with Joe would continue for half a dozen years. Like his previous mistresses, Linda believed that Mankiewicz held the key to unlocking her potential. And this fantasy was bolstered when a letter to three wives opened and earned Linda the best reviews of her career. Not only that, but the movie would prove to be one of the biggest hits of 1949, outgrossing All the King's Men, which won the Best Picture Oscar that year. A Letter to Three Wives had to settle for the Best Director and Best Screenplay trophies. And the following year, Mankiewicz would win the same trophies for All About Eve, making him the only person to take home all four awards in a two-year span. But Mankiewicz only elevated Linda when they were together, which wasn't often. When they were apart, she became increasingly lonely and withdrawn. Meanwhile, when she lost out on the chance to play the title role in Pinky, about a black woman who passes as white, Linda lost all faith in Daryl Zanuck's ability to decide what was best for her career. She subsumed all of her frustrations in alcohol, stopped caring about how she looked, and later admitted to friends that during this period, she was suicidal. Things began to look up on both the personal and professional fronts when a scheduling conflict caused actress Anne Baxter to have to drop out of No Way Out, Mankiewicz's follow-up to All About Eve, a serious drama starring Sidney Poitier as a doctor who was forced to treat two white racists. But this was a temporary triumph. Within the year, Pev and Linda would permanently separate and Linda would remain fixated on a man who was, at best, a part-time lover. The divorce wiped Linda out, financially if not emotionally, understanding that his wife had an incentive to keep her adultery quiet, Pev was able to demand a settlement of $125,000. Paying him off nearly bankrupted Linda. 
she would never be financially flush again and would have to take whatever work she could get just to pay the bills. The timing was bad. The studio system was in transition, and by the end of 1953, 20th Century Fox had canceled most of its old-fashioned star contracts. When Linda was let go by Fox, she initially thought it was a positive thing. She embraced her freedom. But she had grown used to a certain lifestyle, and very quickly, without a studio contract, the money coming in began to diminish. As Linda explained, Suppose you've been earning $4,000 to $5,000 a week for years. Suddenly you were fired, and no one would hire you at any figure remotely comparable to your previous salary. I thought in a little while I'd get offers from other studios, but not many came along. The only thing I knew how to do was be a movie star. No one expects to last forever in this business. You know that sooner or later the studio is going to let you go. But who wants to be retired at 29? She wasn't retired, exactly. Linda Darnell made movies after Fox, including Blackbeard the Pirate, an RKO picture directed by Raoul Walsh, and for the same studio, now owned and managed by Howard Hughes, a 3D drama called Second Chance. And she made a few appearances in the fledgling media of television. But she also spent a lot of time at her home in Bel Air, drinking gin, usually alone. When someone would come over, she would seem to be drunkenly consumed with resentment for Daryl Zanuck and Fox. She was still involved, to some extent, with Mankiewicz, and spent time with him as he worked on the script for The Barefoot Contessa, his epic film about a gorgeous woman who was plucked out of obscurity and turned into a star, which turns out to be a tragedy. Linda believed he was writing it about her, for her to star in. He wasn't. Mankiewicz would later say he based the character of Maria Vargas on a number of women he had known, but the role would go to Ava Gardner, who, incidentally, believed the film was about her own relationship with Howard Hughes. When Linda discovered that Ava had been cast, from Variety and not her boyfriend, she saw it as the ultimate betrayal by the man she loved. This would be the end of their affair. And, really, the end of Linda's career as a significant star. From here, her opportunities would diminish in both scope and substance. And more importantly, she seemed to lose the will to try. She was only 30 years old. In 1954, while Mankiewicz was making The Barefoot Contessa, Linda married Philip Liebman, the owner of Rheingold Beer. Linda didn't love Liebman, but he had bought a ranch in New Mexico and had told Linda if she married him, she would be able to retire there, and he would support her in the lifestyle to which she had become accustomed. He got her out of debt, gave her money to support a charity she had founded, and, at least initially, told her that there would be no strings attached, that they would be married for show only. 
but Philip wouldn't let Linda actually control any of his money, and she began to feel trapped in the marriage. Within two years, she had filed for divorce. Linda began appearing in regional theater to support herself. To her surprise, she found she enjoyed performing for live audiences, although she still required a full bottle of vodka to get through each day. In 1957, she married a pilot named Robbie Robertson. This marriage started out great, but Linda continued to tour the country doing plays and couldn't sync up geographically with husband number three, who worked for American Airlines. Linda's depression began to consume her, as did the couple's shared money problems. In an effort to save both her marriage and her dire finances, Linda agreed to allow Robbie to manage her career. He believed she should be doing a nightclub act. Working with opera singer Thomas Hayward, Linda put together an act that would involve a little bit of singing and a few scenes acted out from her beloved movies, including Letter to Three Wives. The act got a positive review in Variety, but Linda felt she was under so much pressure that she drank more heavily. She'd begin the day with toast, bacon, and Bloody Marys, move on to straight vodka, and then two hours before the show, start in on scotch, which she'd drink throughout the show and after. If her eyes were still open at midnight, she'd open another bottle. Her daughter Lola claimed that two times during this period, while drunk, her mother grabbed a knife and threatened to kill her. One night, in the midst of a fight with Robbie, Linda had to be restrained from jumping out of her hotel window. After that, the show was canceled. On doctor's orders to rest and rebuild her strength, Linda quit drinking for three months. A little while after that, Linda discovered that Robbie was cheating on her when her assistant learned Robbie had sent another woman flowers on Linda's tab. As it turned out, the other woman was pregnant. Linda and Robbie separated in early 1962, and Linda was nearly dead broke. She had another failed suicide attempt, this time with pills. I don't think it was that mother wanted to be dead, her daughter Lola said. I think she simply didn't want to live anymore. She didn't have anything to get up for in the morning. After she divorced Robertson, Linda was forced to sell her home in Bel Air. She and Lola moved to a depressing apartment in the valley. Linda would take whatever gigs she could get, usually in minor live theater, and her teenage daughter was put in charge of the actress's wigs. After a theatrical engagement in Atlanta, Linda flew to Chicago to stay with her good friend Jean Curtis, who had recently moved there with her family. Jean was trying to help Linda sort out her disastrous finances in time to file her tax return. The two women worked on this through the evening, and then around midnight, Linda turned on the TV. One of her early movies, Stardust, was about to start on The Late Show. Linda encouraged Jean and her daughter Patty to stay up and watch with her. 
They all went to bed after the movie and then woke in the early morning hours. The house was filled with smoke and the women exited their upstairs bedrooms to find an inferno of flames rushing up the staircase from the downstairs living room. Patty jumped out a second floor window, breaking multiple bones in the fall. Jean managed to get out and hang from the roof until the firefighters came. But instead of following the others out the second-story window, Linda went downstairs and ended up walking straight into the flames. Jean believed her friend was afraid to jump and decided to move through the burning living room to attempt to get out the front door instead. When firefighters found Linda, she was alive but had sustained serious burns across 90% of her body. A tracheotomy had been performed to allow her to breathe. Nearly the entire surface of her body had burned off. Lola was flown in to see her mom, and she felt unprepared for what she saw. Although, she would say later, there is no way to prepare someone to see a person with no skin. Linda's body could not fight off infection in that state. After less than two days in the hospital, Linda Darnell died. In talking about the blow to her self-esteem and prospects for the future that Linda suffered when she didn't get the part in The Barefoot Contessa, her biographer, who frequently criticizes Darnell's acting ability, writes that Linda realized her time in the limelight was limited and was fully aware she was no great actress. Maybe Linda Darnell did have a low opinion of herself, and maybe she was made to feel that way because the industry didn't value her. But the more of her films that I watch, the more I'm convinced that a great actress is exactly what she was. In every film of hers I've seen, from Stardust to No Way Out, she is completely credible as a completely distinct person. This may be why she didn't have more success as a traditional glamour girl. Aside from the fact that a number of her characters were coded as being sexually voracious and or manipulative of men, there was no such thing as a Linda Darnell type. She even looks markedly different from film to film. Things like wigs and costuming seem to do more to transform Darnell from one part to another. Perhaps because, unlike other stars whose stardom was based on their beauty, as she took on each new character, she didn't really leave any trace of inherent personality behind. I think this is fabulous. And every time I watch a new Linda Darnell film, I'm amazed anew at how good she is and frustrated that she wasn't appreciated for what she was able to do. Next week, we will discuss one of Darnell's rivals for Hughes' affections, another stunning young brunette who believed, incorrectly, that Hughes would marry her. But for this young woman, unlike Darnell, perseverance became part of her brand. Join us then, won't you?
Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editor is Olivia Natt. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen, and our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode with lists of all of our sources and the music used on each episode. And if you go to youmustrememberthispodcast.com slash seduction, you'll find information about how to pre-order the book that this season is related to, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood, written by me. We also have a schedule of events that I'll be doing related to the book, which include book signings, film screenings, and more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. Want to win a signed copy of my new book? You can. I've teamed up with my publisher to give 50 listeners, chosen at random, the chance to win a signed copy of Seduction. This giveaway is open to U.S. residents 18 years of age and older only. Rules and regulations apply. To learn more and enter now, visit our website at youmustrememberthispodcast.com slash seduction. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. 
Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University Maryland's forensic science programs today.